This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 186 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the top young stars in Hollywood, a 27-year-old Aussie who burst onto the scene four years ago in Martin Scorsese's Best Picture Oscar-nominated The Wolf of Wall Street, subsequently cameoed in another Best Picture Oscar nominee, The Big Short, and starred in the blockbuster Suicide Squad and The Legend of Tarzan, and recently began rolling out her best work yet the performance of a lifetime as the controversial figure skater Tanya Harding in Craig Gillespie's terrific indie dramedy I, Tanya, on which she also served as a producer. The stunningly beautiful and extraordinarily talented Margot Robbie. But first, I sat down at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter with Kim Masters, an editor-at-large at THR and the host of KCRW's The Business, as well as the author of the landmark Hollywood books Hit and Run and Keys to the Kingdom, and a person as well-sourced in this town as anyone. Kim, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. I wanted to speak with you because these last three or four weeks in this town have been sort of like an earthquake since the New York Times and New Yorker stories broke. And there's additional context, some of which you've written about in The Hollywood Reporter and elsewhere, as far as other efforts to tell this Harvey story and others that are similar to it. You've been trying for a long time. You know that we've had some efforts at THR that with regard to Harvey, I guess let's just start with how would you summarize these last three or four weeks? It's certainly unprecedented in my experience in Hollywood and everybody else's too. Let's, let's get real. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. There is just this wave of allegations coming forward, which we are trying to check carefully. And before we print anything, we're chasing so many stories at the same time that it's just There are reporters here who evenings, weekends, day and night are getting calls, pursuing tips. You know, the rumor mill is very overheated. So as I said, we have to be really careful. But, you know, in our experience here, for example, once the women came forward in the Harvey Weinstein case, which we'd known about for a long time, and as you you mentioned, we here had made some efforts, and I had made efforts Mm -hmm. throughout years, once that broke... I had been pursuing a story about Roy Price, the head of Amazon Studios, for literal months. And there was a key source who had gone on the record somewhat, but not really. And that finally emboldened her, Issa Hackett. She's the executive producer of Man in the High Castle. Her father is Philip K. Dick. And she had had an experience with him at Comic-Con where he had made these unwanted advances to her. 
I mean, she still was very courageous. She has a lot of business at Amazon Studios, but she finally was like, as many women are, it's enough is enough. And women are coming to us. Many have come to me personally with stories that they've held on to, not not about Harvey or Roy mm-hmm. Price, but of things that happened to them that really appalling that they've held on to for 20 years or more, you know, and they are finally like, I want to tell this story. I've asked some of them to write those essays themselves. They've been very moving and, and I'm very touched by the courage that they've shown. And they have been saying to me how cathartic it has been to finally unburden themselves of these these things that they've been carrying around for so long. I mean, we even ran one from this 95-year-old actress, Janice Page. I mean, this is not a new thing as far as it happening, but it's a new thing as far as people feeling they could talk about it. And as far as this being an unprecedented situation, I, the only thing I can even imagine might have been like this at some point, and it predates obviously all of us, is from what I've read, the whole Fatty Arbuckle situation where somebody who was so powerful in town, a big, you know, famous person went down in a major way. But this is this. It didn't spread the way that this has. And as you say, to Roy Price, to Kevin Spacey, to Dustin Hoffman, people that seemed like they were on the top of the mountain just a few weeks ago, and some of them may be gone forever now. So it does seem like every day someone big is going down. And I just wonder if you have any sense what's around the corner next. It seemed at first it was executives like Harvey. Then we've seen a few actors get called out. It seems like agents are now the the next wave. And it's really all of the above. Yeah. I mean, we, we are pursuing leads in every area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a thing where, I mean, I, I can speak for myself. You know, it's been kind of exhausting and very disgusting to listen to tales of abuse that should never have happened. Mm-hmm. But we feel obligated to pursue you know we're not it's not that we're having fun chasing these guys but you know what we're doing is hearing about behavior that simply should not be allowed to continue i mean if somebody had blown the whistle on harvey earlier and i want to be clear i'm not blaming any of his Mm -hmm, victims mm -hmm. but if it had come out earlier think of how many people would have been spared Mm -hmm. you know so we hear about stuff going on and we think if we don't get after this it could keep going it could keep going and there could be more victims and we can't ignore allegations of terrible behavior Is it your sense that we are exhausting the number of examples that are out there, or are they... No, no, unfortunately not, no. I mean, this is very pervasive, and I I confess to being somewhat naive, I think. I mean, I knew for 15, 20 years these allegations about Harvey and rape. You even said to him directly something, right? Can you tell that story? Uh, The first time I met him face-to-face was at the Peninsula, out on their sort of patio in their restaurant, And I don't remember, I had written something he didn't like. I can't remember what it was. And he came barreling in, very loud, very aggressive, very intimidating, and yelled, what have you heard about me? What have you heard about me? And I thought, okay, you know, if you're going to do that, then I'm going to do this. So I just (laughs) said, I've heard you rape women. And because it was an off-the-record lunch, I have not exactly, I remember exactly what he said, but I I haven't used the exact words. But I will say, if you thought it would be, what are you talking about? Or I'm sorry, what? Or how dare you? <laughs> it was yeah. not like that at all. Wow. On Twitter recently, one of the people who's been commenting on a lot of this is Mark Harris, who's written some some interesting stuff. And he made the point that I think was sort of interesting, which is that thus far, many of the people who have been accused were either already widely disliked, like Harvey, or largely anonymous outside of the business. And then he said, though, you know, get ready, because soon it's going to potentially start involving people who we all think we know and love. And I just wonder, you know, I guess it's sort of 
started in that direction with Spacey and Hoffman, who not... I mean, we don't want to conflate the behavior. Right, I mean, Hoffman exactly. seems Very, to have been a harasser, and right. Spacey was, as I understand it, allegedly a serial assaulter. Yeah, and pedophile and whatever yeah. else. How will Hollywood respond? It's easy to, to, you know, I think a lot of people have had 30 years of pent-up disgust for Harvey that just exploded as a result of this, and deservedly so, but how do you think this town will handle it if and when it starts to hit people who they feel differently about? I think it already is on the grapevine, you know, and I've known, I've had this experience where maybe I do know the person, maybe I don't know them, but know their reputation. And you feel like, please don't tell me that. I would really love to unhear what you just said. And then it gets to a point where you realize there's just so much specificity and detail that you think I'm going to have to grit my teeth and pursue, you know, and it's not something we enjoy. I mean, Kevin Spacey, for some people, was that guy. In the industry, not so much. You know, he has a reputation well established in this industry. But, you know, I did an interview with him once on my show on KCRW, and he, I felt talking to him, no connection whatsoever, but people... It was one of the most beloved episodes we did. People thought he was very intelligent, mm-hmm. of course, and people would, would say to me, wow, it was obvious you two had such a great connection. And I was like, well, I didn't feel that in the room at mm-hmm. all. He's kind of an odd mm-hmm. dude. But for whatever reason, he was able to project that. And I know people have said to me, no, Kevin Spacey? No, it can't be. And I'm sort of surprised because in Hollywood, we all knew that it could be. Well, we knew that he was a closeted gay person. Yeah, but I think he also had a reputation for being an, sexually aggressive and, and not being a nice guy generally. Really? Okay. My only interview with him was he slurped on matzo ball soup the entire thing, which was a little weird. But <laughs> we were supposed to have him on this podcast in a couple of weeks. I suspect that's right, not going to happen. So <laughs> I remember when we did it, he came in with a tennis racket. And my producer said, oh, are you going to to play tennis after? And he's, he just said, no. And I was like, <laughs> okay, what's up with the tennis racket? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, so as we can both attest, this is all that anyone in the business is talking about right now. You go to any meeting, you go to lunch, whatever. This right. is the first topic of conversation. And I wonder if you think it is causing people in the business already to behave differently than they were before things were happening. Things that I've heard are... Some people won't have a one-on-one meeting if they're a man with a woman because they're afraid that it will, you know, anything could be said about it if there's not another person there, just things like that. And I wonder if you've heard anything about that. I think for now, people are watching themselves and certain people are obviously sweating bullets and hoping that it doesn't come. You know, they don't want the phone call from me, for example, <laughs> right now. The grim reaper. Yeah, they don't want me reaping. Right. So, yeah, I'm sure right now, anybody who's been misbehaving, I mean, I, I'll tell you a personal story mm-hmm. that goes back a while. When I, I used to work at the Washington Post, but there was an incident w- which became somewhat public involving Juan Williams, who I knew and mm-hmm. had gone to college with, and I knew there were, I believed, grounds for allegations. Mm-hmm. But there had been another columnist who had been harassing me pretty aggressively. In a sexual nature? Yeah. yeah. And calling me at home, all kinds of, mm, what are you wearing, creepy stuff. That's not okay. No. So this guy emailed me after Juan Williams had become a thing. And because Juan, there were 17 women or something like that who ultimately complained. So then there was this soul searching in the newsroom at the Post. I'm sure something similar is going on at NPR where they just lost their head of news. Like, why didn't we know when there were this many women? And, you know, I remember Len Downey, who was the editor of the Post at this point, saying to me and another reporter, how did I not know this? And I was sort of like, yeah, how did you not right, know this? Right. Like, that should suggest there's a problem. Right. But right after Juan Williams, in the midst of that, this, this columnist emailed me and said, are we okay? And what are we okay meant was, I know 
that I have been behaving in an inappropriate manner. And I am going to hope that you don't bust me. And I, and I let it alone. I didn't do it. Somebody later did. Because sooner or later, you know, you're playing with fire when you do this kind of behavior. And these guys aren't, these aren't isolated incidents. Normally, these Never. are repeat. I mean, one thing I found a pattern in terms of being on what I'm now calling the sexual predator beat right. is that whatever you hear first is the least of it. Mm-hmm. You know, people sort of reacted with uh, Kevin Spacey, like, well, it was so many years ago and how he didn't really, what did he do? And he, but then, of course, they dropped him like a hot brick because they know there's so much more and it wasn't only seven years ago and some of it is really bad. That's that's the speed. When you see somebody dropped like that with speed, they know there's a problem. You think we'll ever see Harvey or Kevin Spacey or any number of these guys again in this town, in this business? In my opinion, mm-hmm. Harvey is going to be lucky to stay out of jail. Mm-hmm. I think Kevin Spacey may be in the same position. So I think this issue that you were alluding to about Mark Harris saying that we haven't had people we liked, you know, so we, for example, saw William Morris Endeavor suspend Adam Bennett, mm-hmm. who is quite a popular guy, mm-hmm. had a film, has yes. to do with the this Terry Crews series of tweets that he was groped and he didn't name his groper, but somehow it came to light mm-hmm. that the alleged groper was Adam Bennett. Adam Bennett is the guy who's more liked. And it's a more more of a moment of people saying, oh, no, you know, does it have to be this guy? You know, he's not fired. He's suspended. William Morris is in a tricky position because their first duty is to their client, who is Terry Crews. They cannot protect. Is he still their client? Not that it should matter. As far but, as I know, yeah. he is. So, I mean, he was as of a few days ago. Mm-hmm. So, so that's their duty. Mm-hmm. And then they have to know, find out what else is there, you know. So I've been kind of honestly wondering, is there a way for Adam to have another act because I won't tie this specifically to Adam, but in many of these cases, substances are at play, like Roy Price, heavy drinking, others, always a lot of, you know, that kind of thing. Not always, often. Some people are just serial predators. They don't need to get drunk or high, apparently. Seems like Harvey, yeah. Yeah, but I've been wondering, for example, when I started reporting on Roy Price, I had heard enough about alleged drunk or not sober behavior that I thought, you know, this was months ago when I started that. I thought, is this guy just going to play the rehab card and say, I've been really screwed up. I'm going to do detox. I'm going to get therapy. And I wonder some of these guys might not, who are less egregious in their conduct or where, you know, where maybe this is a substance connected behavior. I've been waiting for somebody to play the rehab Has card. Has Roy Price given any comments since he was terminated? He's done, I mean, he did speak a bit to the Wall Street Journal just now, very recently, and he said that he denied certain things. I mean, but I haven't seen anything that suggests that he's like copping to bad behavior. Well, I guess just as a, a last thing, I wonder where, I wonder if you think this could veer into other forms of abuse, which we are certainly all aware of happening in this town, where you have people that throw phones at their underlings. We have people that are brutally verbally abusive to people that work for them and things like that. It's not to in any way equate those things with sexual assault, but they are abuse in their own forms. And I just wonder if you think that this cleaning house period that we're going through right now could extend to those sorts of behaviors as well, as long as we're all at this. I think that 
you know, we know Kathy Kennedy has been talking about trying to come up with some sort of mechanism to deal with allegations. I would suspect that that would extend to inappropriate conduct. I mean, Hollywood is not one company. Companies have policies, you know. It doesn't stop people from violating them. But I think there will be some kind of code of conduct, and I'm going to guess bullying and abuse will be part of it. You're saying from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences? Not necessarily. Or? No, I don't think so. I think it will be out of outside of the Academy. I, I think they're meeting and talking about what to do, and we're hoping to be updated on that. But yeah. Well, how would this work? You're Kathy Kennedy, who runs Lucasfilm, we're saying she would apply this at her own company, or she's saying she'd want no, all companies to adopt to this? she to figure out a mechanism, and it's, yeah. it's very early days. Yeah. I mean, what, what is it? How does it work? But mm-hmm. Kathy's a very capable yeah. woman. So if she's putting her attention with this, I would feel like you know, that is an encouraging thing. And then other companies might sign on to whatever they come up with as a code of conduct. Is that what you mean? Maybe so. I yeah. mean, I can't, I, she's not showing her hand just yeah. yet. Yeah. But what I would say also is that what has really been striking to me throughout this now is that in certain companies, this culture explains why women are not in more high level jobs. Because, you know, I talked to an assistant who had used to be at Warner Brothers, who would, you know, assistants listen in on calls mm-hmm. regularly and would hear people saying, you know, we're going to go here, maybe Vegas, often Vegas. You know, it's an ostensible business thing, but no women. It's, thank God we don't have any women. We can do whatever. I've heard about that at other companies. And, you know, this is this is a really, this is the macro issue of it all is if you, we've heard so much about women being underrepresented in the executive suites and all kinds of places. And I really do now believe more than I realized before. It's because the boys were having much too much of their boy fun and they didn't want women around to, to ruin it. Or the women they wanted around were not the not it wasn't necessarily i, I want to figure out a, a certain s- type right. of woman <laughs> and that's not to denigrate the women who have made it in this business but it just no, i think no, it is. i mean yeah. i think those women who have even the ones who have made it yeah. are routinely excluded i mean i remember dawn Steele, who mm-hmm. the late head of one point columbia pictures and before that she was at paramount one of the few women who had made yeah. it she once said to me if only i could go whoring with these guys i would find my life so much easier <laughs> and you know that's the reality then and now mm-hmm. it's just because you're not it's not it's the a version of the golf club bonding that you know golf course bonding that guys have done for over the years and sometimes at man only clubs yeah. and this is a behavior that is like winked at, understood, accepted. I've heard of thing, you know, this being proffered as gifts or currying favor with certain executives. I'm I'm arranging this little thing for you. As long as that's a dominant part of the culture in Hollywood, women will not be welcome in the executive suite. Right. Well, Kim Masters, thank you so much for joining us. Keep up the good work and get sleep. I know it's <laughs> tough right now. Do I look shattered? No. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. And now for my conversation with Margot Robbie. I sat down with Robbie at the offices of IDPR in Hollywood, where we discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a girl from Australia's Gold Coast wound up in Melbourne starring at the age of 17 in the country's biggest soap opera, and then three years later coming to Hollywood, how once there, a failed audition led to a short-lived TV series and then to a fateful improv session opposite Leonardo DiCaprio for Scorsese, why post-Wolf of Wall Street, Robbie felt somewhat conflicted about her image as a bombshell something that she has subsequently made fun of on occasion, including in her bathtub cameo in The Big Short and in a hilarious SNL segment, but also something that partially motivated her to form her own production company in 2014. What it was like following 2016's $175 million comic book adaptation Suicide Squad, in which she brought to life Harley Quinn, one of her favorite characters that she's played, with the low-budget indie I, Tanya 
and how that came together over a mentally and physically grueling 31-day shoot, during which she eerily transformed into Harding at numerous points between the ages of 15 and 44, as convincingly on the ice as off it, plus a whole host of other topics, including what the status is of the rumored Harley Quinn spinoff, why she now wishes she had pursued a career path that had not resulted in her becoming famous, what she makes of the recent wave of sexual abuse allegations in Hollywood, and the list goes on. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mario, thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. So we always just begin with the very basics. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised on the Gold Coast in Australia, and my mum is a physiotherapist. She is still working. She works at a uh, special school with disabled kids. Needless to say, she is a saint. Yeah. And my dad had sugarcane farms and mango farms when I was growing up and also dabbled in real estate. Nice. Yes. So if we were to like track down your childhood friends and say what kind of a kid was Margo, what would we hear from, let's say, grade school, junior high equivalent, something like that? Uh-huh. Well, fortunately for me, um, all my friends – uh, still all my friends, like my grade school childhood friends. <laughs> so they protect you. <laughs> yeah. I went to the same school from preschool to grade 12, okay. which is like the final year of high school in, in Australia. So I was at the same place for 13 years. And so my group of girlfriends or our group of girlfriends, you know, we've known each other f- since we were five years old. Yeah. And so my best friends have been my best friends for, you know, over two decades now I'd be curious to hear how they would describe (laughs) me I don't know what they would say I guess were you the like class clown or were you already you know drama geek or whatever kind kind, I guess so yeah I I got in trouble a little bit at school (laughs) when I was like younger in the younger years I talked a lot in class and I had a you know very short attention span I'd always like you know so that sort of thing was maybe lend itself towards the wasn't specifically the class class clown though, but yeah, I was I was always a little dramatic as a child. I suppose yes, like yes. I was always in all the plays and putting on plays and doing dances and all that stuff. So I, I came across something that says this was a profile view quote: When she was sixteen, simultaneously cleaning houses, making sandwiches in Subway, and working in a surf store to make ends meet, she was approached to act in a low budget B movie shooting nearby. Close quote. Now. A, is that true? And if it's true, that sounds like a little sketchy, the way that the way it's described. What actually Pretty accurate, happened? actually. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like to make ends meet. It was more so that, like, I could, you know, have money to, like, go to the movies with my friends right. and all that kind of stuff. No, I was in grade 12. I was, yeah, at one point I was doing three jobs at a time. I was working at Subway. I worked in a surf store, like retail. Mm-hmm. And I was a house cleaner. Mm-hmm. And my best friend growing up, Christian, we've been friends since we were like, you know, born. He had a part in a very low budget film that was shooting on the Gold Coast. And he asked if I wanted to do an audition for it as well. So that's how I got, that was pretty much my first job. First it was time. unpaid. It was never released or distributed or anything like that. But it was something and it was work and it was being on a film set. And that was, that kind of opened the door to and everything else. did you else. enjoy it? Was it something that set, made you I say I loved that? it. Okay. Yeah, I loved it. Oh my gosh. And then that, from that point on, that kind of, you know, just, just, 
I feel like whenever someone's like, how do I get in the industry? I'm right. like, just do anything, right. do anything, because right. it will lead to something else. And it doesn't matter if your first 20 jobs are unpaid. The fact that you're doing something is always going to lead to something bigger and better. And that was the case for me anyway. So how soon after that did you get an agent? Not long after that, but it wasn't like a proper agency. It was probably one of the less legitimate agencies in Australia. It doesn't exist anymore. It kind of dissolved shortly after I joined it anyway. But it did fortunately mean that I was included in a countrywide casting call for a TV show called The Elephant Princess. And I auditioned for the lead role and I got down to the last three girls for it. And I didn't get it, but I was asked to come back for a guest role later on in the in the series and that was shooting in Melbourne. So that's what got me out of the Gold Coast and in Melbourne. And again, like that was the best thing to ever happen because that's how I ended up winding up on Neighbours. Yes, so we'll talk about that. I guess though, it sounds like this next quote I'm gonna read back to you, you were 18 when you said it, which is about the same time you got Neighbours, I think, 08? 17, I was 17. You were 17, when you, so I guess you were already on Neighbours when you said this, but mm-hmm. this was a student magazine, S-Press, quote, I've got big, big dreams for the future. I want to go to L.A. and be a massive actor over there, close quote. So you were thinking about <laughs> you were thinking about Clearly, this Clearly, that's back in the day when I was speaking and not realizing that anyone would and ever quote me back to myself. I think that's, that's cool, though, because, I mean, it sh- you, you were – this was sort of – not many people, like, have a goal, say it, and actually go and, and do it. So this was ult- always the ultimate thing that you were – whatever you were doing in Melbourne, it was with the ultimate goal of ending up here. Yes, it took me a while to like come to that conclusion and kind of decide that that was the goal. Not because I didn't want it, not it was just because I didn't know it was an option. Yeah. But when I ended up on Neighbours, I was so shocked to even find myself there, like on the biggest TV show that I've grown up with in Australia. And, you know, that was that was crazy. I felt like I'd reached the top. Can I at prompt that you just to interrupt for one sec to ask you to explain? Like, so soap operas in Australia are huge. Yeah. They used to be huge here. It sort of died out here, but like yeah, it's probably the same in Australia. It's same dying there. out for okay. sure. Yeah. So you though took some initiative to end up there. I mean, right? How'd you yeah, get on Neighbours? I guess the important thing about Neighbours and Home and Away, they're like the two long-running soaps in Australia that everyone grew up on. They're very, very popular in the UK, and though they're not known, they're not popular or watched in America. The name is known in America, and and that's kind of like one of the only Australian shows that you can do. It's just a foot in the door when you get here. You say yeah. neighbors, and though no one's seen it, they're like, "Oh right, but Kylie Minogue was on it. Sure, it's I know like what you're talking about." It's there. just a foot in the door, yeah. so that's why it was kind of helpful in the long run. But yeah, no, when I got a role on Neighbors, and I was obviously so thrilled, and I still hadn't even realized that I wanted, you know, that I could be an actor for a living. Right. I was just kind of like, "Woohoo, life is great! <laughs> look, look where all these opportunities have right. led me. I'm so happy. I'm in Melbourne, and right. you know, I'm going to get." paid to do the funnest job in the world when I got there I kind of it took me a couple months to realize I like looked around after a couple months of working on the show and I was like I think I asked some of the older cast members who had been on the show for 20 years or whatever and I was like so do you do like any other jobs and they're like no (laughs) and I was like just acting and they're like yeah and I was like and you can support your family and own a house just by doing acting and they were like yes and I was like wow okay well, I want to do that. Like, right. I want to just be an actor and right. not have to, you know, do jobs on the side and things like that. And then I kind of realized that either my options were either get thrown off neighbors for not being good enough. So right. I was like, okay, definitely not going to let that right. happen. Option B, stay on neighbors for, you know, a couple of decades mm-hmm. if you're lucky and, and have a really wonderful life and right. career here in Melbourne. 
Or the third option that I was seeing other actors on Neighbours do was make the trip to America and, and, and take a chance. And I thought, well, I don't want to play the same character for years and years and years. Yeah, so option C was door number three yeah, was so. the one I was I was aiming for. Well, let's not gloss over the fact because you're talking about like things that it would be good for, you know, aspiring actors to know. And, you know, it's often reported with you like, oh, it was this overnight sensation or whatever with mm-hmm. Wolf of Wall. That's what people saw here. But like, who's Jan Ross? How did you get on Neighbours? Right. So she was the casting agent for years and years on, on Neighbours. And so, you know how I mentioned before that I, that unpaid B movie that never was yes. released, that led to getting, joining an agency, which led to being a part of a casting call that led to an audition that led to a guest role that led me to Melbourne on the TV show. Incidentally, Liam Hemsworth was also on that show. Pre-fame. Yeah, pre-fame. But while I was in Melbourne, my agent back on the Gold Coast at the time said, do you know Neighbours shoots in Melbourne? You should try and get an audition while you're there. And I was like, great. And at that time, I had no idea that that's what an agent is actually meant to do. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, and I was like, well, I wonder how I'll do that. So I just kind of went online and looked up Fremantle Media's phone number and then I would call Fremantle Media every day that I was in Melbourne I'd call them and and ask to speak to Jan Russ and they'd never put me through and then like one day it must mean someone different on the desk because they (laughs) did put me through and I said you know hello my name's Margot Robbie I'm an actor and I'm you know working on a tv show currently here in Melbourne and I would love to meet you if you have just five minutes please just give me five minutes and she said fine come in and so I went in to see her and she was like I think she didn't know I was as young as I was because when I walked in she was like how old are you? And I was like, <laughs> I'm 17. And she was like, oh, well, we are casting for a 17-year-old girl for Neighbours at the moment, so come back next week for an audition. So I extended my flights, crashed on the couch I was crashing <laughs> on for another week, which, by the way, I knew no one in Melbourne at the time, right. so I was sleeping on, like, a different casting agent's house, oh couch, God. and, like, the whole thing was, yeah. <laughs> not um, casting, not their couch. Not their casting couch. <laughs> she was a young female. She was, okay, she okay, was okay. you know, helping her sister yes. out. So, yeah, so... Did the audition, which I thought went terribly, and I was like, well, you know, what an experience. I'll never get the job. Obviously, it was a bad audition. I'd never get Neighbours anyway. So, you know, those jobs you mentioned earlier in the year that I was doing simultaneously, that was all with the goal of saving up enough money to go on this snowboarding trip in Canada at the end of high school. Like my big, I'm finished with school. I'm getting, you know, like I'm, I'm, yeah. So I saved up all my money, got to Canada and two days later, got the call saying, you got the job on Neighbours and you start next week. And I was like, I'm I'm not in the country. What do you mean I start next week? I mean, Neighbours is a quick right, turnaround. Right, I mean, right. you're there and, yeah, so that was a bit of a conundrum. Well, the, the thing with this character, and let's just note, Donna Freeman, bisexual in search of her biological father, I believe, is that more yeah, or less Yeah, that's more correct? or less true, yeah. As you say, it was guest role, becomes a regular role. You, I guess, pretty quickly became well-known in Australia, and people like to belittle soap opera work. Mm-hmm. And yet, every person I've ever talked to about it who's done it and we've had on this show says that it's actually the best training ground you could possibly have because you're yeah. just bombarded, right? 100%. It was the best training. I never went to film school or drama school or anything like that, and I learned everything on the job, and it was an incredible education. And if you can survive on Neighbours, you can – like, I, I remember – when I left Neighbours, I was like, I will never do a job as hard as that again. Just because of the volume of material you have to turn around yeah, so quickly? I mean, some days you sit in the makeup chair in the morning and have 60 pages and just like re- quickly flick through 60 pages of your lines that day. And you have to remember it immediately. I mean, it shoots. So you've got seven minutes to shoot a four-minute scene. I mean, a four-minute scene, 
in the film world, right. you could spend a week shooting right. that. To do it in, it's, I mean, it's insane. It's You've got three yeah. cameras. You have to end, you know, the boom operators are moving the mics based on your last word right. of your line, so you can't mess up. You know, if, if you don't position yourself correctly and you're in someone's light or they're in your light, I mean, you just look terrible on screen mm-hmm. or they'll just cut you out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really like sink or swim, like yeah. bring your A game or you're just not in it sort right. of thing. So so it's an amazing training ground and, and you learn so much. You learn so much about everyone's department because you're with everyone and there isn't a hierarchy I found when I was working in Australia, working on Neighbours. There wasn't the segregation I find in in America, working in America and even in England as well, actually, mm-hmm. where, you know, the actors sit in their trailers mm-hmm. and the crew are in the studio. It was like, there are no trailers. Right. There's no separate room, dressing room. There was 30 cast members in one room with two couches, oh, 17 hours a day, every day, you know, all year with a three-week, four-week holiday right. throughout the year. So, I mean, it's intense and you're together all the time and you're with the crew and there's no... We were never treated any differently right. to any crew member ever. And I was shocked when I came to America right. and suddenly everyone's like, can I get you something? I'm like, oh, I usually make the tea right. for everyone. Right. Wait, someone's going to make me tea? This is so weird. So at the end of your three years, three seasons, I get three years with the show, you within five days were off to America. That was reading. Yeah. So I'm you get here. impatient sometimes. No, well, I mean, it's not, you, again, you knew what you wanted to do. So you, you got here and... What was the landscape when you showed up here? Did you have a representation here? Did you have something waiting for you or did you have to figure it out when you got here? I I shortly after joining Neighbours got a real legitimate Australian agent, Aaron Michael, who who is still my Australian Mm -hmm. agent. And I kind of said to him, like he heard because I, I had been negotiated the worst contract in history. (laughs) So for for two and a half years of contract, I had like the worst contract ever. Was that because you didn't have your agent when you first exactly. went in? <laughs> I didn't know what I was meant to ask for. Right. So, so yeah, I, I was, it was terrible. But he heard that I had pretty much negotiated the worst contract in history and he was like, hey, do you need an agent? And I was like, yes, please. <laughs> so shortly after joining with Aaron, I said to him, like, I, I want to go to America and what do I need to do? And and so it, we were very strategic from that point on and we timed it out. I did an extra six months on Neighbours. I extended my contract by six months and got actually paid a decent Decently, wage for right. six months, which was right. helpful because I needed to save up yes. for America. I wanted to save up so that if I was un- unemployed for two years, I'd still be, you know, have enough to stay over here. Right. That was the plan. So my whole time on Neighbours, I saved my money and I did dialect coaching so I could have my American accent, like, perfect. Before you got here, yeah, because yeah. I could not do an accent no. to save my life. I had <laughs> the most Australian accent you have ever heard. This accent right now is very well-rounded. Like, when I started on Neighbours, I was playing right. an Australian character, right, obviously, right. and they hired a dialect coach because I sounded too Australian. There's degrees of Yeah, there's Australia. like Crocodile Dundee and right. then there's normal Australian accent. I was on the Crocodile Dundee side. Okay. So they were like, so to do an American accent was obviously so far beyond right. me and I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't hear it. I couldn't do it. So I, yeah, spent two years doing the dialect coaching and saving my money and then I came over here but it was timed out in a way that I came at the end of October so that I could get representation over here before coming back for pilot season. I didn't want to land in January because back then pilot season is a bit different now because streaming services and stuff's trying to kind of change things but it used to be January to April that's pilot season that's when you're going to get cast in a tv show so be in America for then. We wanted to have my representation before pilot season and be ahead of the game in that way. So the idea was to go straight after my six extra extended six months finished on Neighbours, get here end of October, meet with 
managers and potential probably managers not yeah, agents at right. that stage and that's how I ended up joining management 360 but when I was over here meeting with managers and I signed with management 360 they said while well, you're here can you do a quick audition I was like I really wasn't planning on doing auditions until I came back in January but sure and it was for the tv show Charlie's Angels which reboot. ended up only playing for yeah the reboot which yes. ended up only playing for five episodes I think but it was with John Papsidera that was my first audition and the best thing was that they liked my audition and so they said we'll bring you back to test in front of the studio in January and we'll fly you over and I was like this Perfect. is amazing <laughs> you saved some so dough. I saved some money yeah. there <laughs> got back to America for free in right. January did the audition didn't get it but they said we've got another TV show with ABC it's called Pan Am and we think you'd be better suited for that actually and that was what was sort of planned to be or built to be madman of the skies so you get that you're the you're the stewardess who has left Laura her Cameron, Laura Cameron yes <laughs> we should give her her due she i if i recall has left her she ran out marriage. of her yeah literally ditched her <laughs> husband to be at Not the altar very nice but we she drove does off the... with my sister in the show Kelly Garner and yes. we yeah drove off in a convertible <laughs> it was brilliant now the thing is you seem to have recognized sooner than the network, which itself recognized pretty quickly that this was not clicking as a show, not through no fault of your own, but it just wasn't. I mean, the show itself lasted 14 episodes. I read that you saw the writing on the wall well before that. Well, the thing was, we were on air and filming simultaneously by the fifth episode. So the first four episodes, I think, were brilliant episodes Mm -hmm. because there was you know, we were left alone to do those episodes. Once we were on air, everything's dictated by numbers. And and they had put a lot of money, I believe. This is all speaking from mm-hmm, what I understood mm-hmm. at the time. I, Who knows? But it, it seemed to me that they'd spent a lot of money on advertising the show but gave us a very late time slot on a Sunday night. And I think we're up against football, which no matter how many billboards you put up in Times Square, if someone's watching the football, they're not going to suddenly no. see a billboard no. and think, I don't like football anymore and I want, I'm want, i going to watch Pan Am. <laughs> so I don't believe they got the ratings they were hoping to get based right. on how much they were putting into the advertising. The DVR ratings were huge. It was so late on Sunday night that everyone would record it and right. watch it on Monday. So there was a lot of amazing positive feedback from people being like, I love this show. They just weren't tuning in at the times and obviously that doesn't bring any money in recording on a DVR at that stage for the network. So so they, I believe they kind of did a rehaul and brought in different writers right. and said, let's make it more like Desperate Housewives or something. And I was like, what? That's yeah. not what this show is meant to be. And right. suddenly the scripts kind of changed, the storylines changed, and it was, you know, a little more soapy after that, which, hey, everyone knows I'm not against the soap. I love right, Neighbours. Right. But it wasn't right for that show, I right. don't think. So... I think it kind of started turning into a show that we perhaps didn't set out to create, but nonetheless, it was brilliant, like one of my best years of my life. I was living in New York. I was working every day. I mean, I made so many amazing friends. Like some of my closest friends in America are still the friends like, you know, the first team ADs, one of my best friends, standby props, one of my best friends. So like... For me personally, it was the greatest experience ever. As a show, you're right; it didn't it didn't but work. But when it was canceled, were you you know you'd now had a taste of getting to work at a high level in this country? When it's canceled after 14 episodes, is a part of you saying I'm concerned about where we go from here, or 
were there already things in the pipeline beyond that? There were already things in the pipeline. Typically when a show doesn't pick up the back nine, they call it, like extending yeah. it for another nine episodes, you, it's, it's pretty indicative that they don't plan on going for a season two. Mm-hmm. So we started kind of planning things presuming that we probably wouldn't go for a season two, auditioning for other things. And I also signed with CAA, agent, my agency now, at that point, just so that we could kind of bring in more opportunities yeah. and be prepared. So for me, the show being cancelled from a selfish point of view worked perfectly right. for me. It was sad that it was over, but I'd had my fill playing yeah. that character. Right. It's probably why I do like doing film so much. I prefer yeah. doing a character for a finite amount of time, not extending on right. for the unforeseeable future. It actually worked out really well, and, and it was a great launch pad. It was, you know, it was my initiation into the American market, and you know the show was well-received enough that, that yeah. it was a great launch pad and all those things. So it worked out well, and I started doing auditions. One of the auditions I did was for Richard Curtis's yes. film About Time. By Skype, I heard, right? How I guess I that's now tape. more common. I did a tape. tape and, and then a follow-up. And then I did a follow-up like Skype. So yeah. that was a supporting part in that movie. It was, it was you're getting into movies. But then the what clearly seems like a big thing, it's mischaracterizing it to say that it was like overnight, here's out of the blue Margot with Wolf Wall Street. But Wolf Wall Street is the one that changed it totally yeah and it did come up quite quickly i did an audition on tape again because everyone did an audition on tape for Wolf Wall i have to get you to tell the story though because that first just how you found out about that one and then also what that audition itself entailed because it's now in its own way kind of a famous story what you went in there and you again you have like very finite amount of time to make an impression there's for all you know a hundred other people that are going to be looked Mm -hmm. at for this part so connect the dots from when you when you hear that there's an opportunity that you're going to have the opportunity to audition for a Scorsese movie mm-hmm. to what you do in the room. Yeah, so so everyone kind of got the casting call and so many of my friends over here were doing like the audition as well. So but I remember I I read the script and I said to my team I was like I don't like her as a character and they were like oh well, that doesn't matter. We don't expect you to get this part. It's for a Scorsese film. We just, uh, you know, you just need to do a good audition and make a good impression for our casting director. For this casting director, she casts a lot of things. This is Ellen Lewis. Ellen Lewis, correct. So, you know, I put a lot of work into just doing the best audition possible, but I never thought I was anything like this character. I never thought I could pull off this kind of character, but, you know, I kind of made it my mission to just impress Ellen Lewis. That's that's the right. best that can come out of this scenario. And so I did an audition on tape and that got sent in. And then I get a call as I'm flying over to do the table read for about time. Mm-hmm. I get a call saying, Ellen Lewis, what's your tape? And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is the best day of my life. Ellen Lewis, watch my tape. Right. Nothing could be better than right. this. And they're like, no, 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 that's not even the good news. She loved the tape. And I was like, oh, my God. And then she's like, no, 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 we're still not at the good news. She sent it straight to Marty. And I was like, Marty, 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 who's Marty? And I was like, Martin Scorsese? And they're like, yeah, everyone calls him Marty. I was like, oh, my gosh, I have so much to learn in this industry. And I was like, okay, what does that mean? And it was like, it means that he wants to do an audition in person with you and Leo in the room. They'll be doing this with a few other actresses. And so that was crazy. And I did the table read and then I flew out to go do this audition. And I showed up and Ellen Lewis was like, what are you wearing? (laughs) And I was like, well, 
I've just flown in from doing a table read and I didn't know I'd be doing this. Right. So uh, I didn't, you know, pack for this audition. Right. I was wearing probably like jeans uh-huh, and like uh-huh. sneakers or something. And she was like, you're going to go to Soho right now. It's around the corner <laughs> by the highest heels and the tightest dress so that you actually look like the part. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went back. Tried right. to dress like the Duchess right. as much as I possibly right. could in a 15-minute right. shopping spree and came back to do the audition. And there were three scenes to read and I remember doing the first scene and I was sticking to the script because after working on Neighbours, like I all I'd ever known yeah. was to be word perfect so that everyone else can, you know, that's just how I knew to work. And same with network television, to be honest. So Leo starts improvising and I remember I must have made a face. I remember he said, in the scene, he goes, well, what's that face? <laughs> and I was like, is, is he asking me? Should I answer him? Oh, or is he doing the, is he right. being the character? And then I was like, right. oh, my goodness, he's, he's going off book. And I was like, I've never improvised in my life. Right. I don't know what to do here. So I was, yeah, stumbling and I didn't know what to do. And, you know, he's obviously such a powerful actor yeah. that he can run with anything. So I thought, I've ruined this audition. This is terrible. <laughs> so scene number two is a fight scene and I've got like, 30 seconds to collect my thoughts and I think you sucked in scene number one. <laughs> You've probably got about a minute left in this right. room. You're in a room with Leonardo DiCaprio, one of your favourite actors of all right. time, and Martin Scorsese, like the legend of filmmaking. Right. Just make an impression. Just right. do something because this can be something, you know, right. like this you don't want to regret anything later. So I went fully at it, totally off book, started screaming and swearing at Leo and he's doesn't miss a beat he's like fighting back (laughs) and he is like incredible so I'm trying to keep up with him but this fight is escalating and we're screaming and we're screaming and we're screaming and slowly it finds its way back to one of the lines in the scene where where the the fight sort of culminates and ends with with his character saying now get over here and kiss me and so at that point I was like well this is the end of the scene am I meant to go over and kiss him and I remember like kind of walking up and trying to decide what to do and I was like well you could totally just kiss Leonardo DiCaprio (laughs) right now and that would be a a great story to tell your grandkids one day (laughs) but instead I just went like whack and slapped him in the face hard right (laughs) pretty hard and that was the end of the (laughs) and then I stood there kind of frozen like oh my god reality washed (laughs) over me and I realized I just slept Leonardo DiCaprio and I thought they're going to arrest me for assault (laughs) I'll never work again forget about making a good impression this is terrible and and he just burst out laughing and he was like (laughs) and Marty was pissing himself laughing and they were both laughing like did you see that that was so funny and they're like great do that again and I was like okay I'm so sorry I'm so sorry and I was like "I I won't hit you this time he's like no Hit me again. And I was like, right. okay, but I won't do it as hard. He's like, hit me as hard again. <laughs> and we did the scene again, and it was brilliant. And that's just a testament of the kind of actor he is. He's so committed. He's so, I mean, everyone already knows this, that he's brilliant. But seeing it in person was was really one of the highlights of my career. And for your Time 100 piece, Marty said oh. that that was the moment that he decided you were the, you were the person. That, <laughs> so I guess it was the right instinct. Yeah. And in fact... You know, it seems like just sort of instinctively you you tapped into what you later, you know, stated was the key to that character, which is, quote, you said, she grew up in Brooklyn and she wants a better life. And she's like, I can get it from this guy. And the way she manipulates him and drives him crazy is with her sexuality. So 
you'd had the accent ready or you'd had the American accent ready, but this is a weirder variation of that. Mm-hmm. How, was that a particular challenge with this? It was, but it was such a fun challenge. I love accents because I did two years of dialect coaching in right. Australia. I right. got to really learn about accents from the foundation up. And, and once I'd done all that work, the foundation work, it was actually a lot easier. It's always been a lot easier to learn a new accent because I've, I know the technicality behind accents and muscles and, you know, words like diphthongs and all that fun <laughs> stuff. I didn't have to learn right. off, on each job. So learning, we had the most incredible dialect coach Tim Monick and he taught me how to do the Brooklyn accent and he's incredible and he'd get me to read a lot of John Patrick Shanley plays which sounds so good in a Brooklyn accent (laughs) so so yeah but no I didn't know anyone when I did the first audition I didn't know anyone from Brooklyn I didn't know what a Brooklyn accent was meant to sound like so that's when my acting coach Nancy Banks Mm -hmm. had said like do the nail thing pretend you got acrylic nails on and that was like (laughs) the most helpful thing for creating the character weirdly enough and to tapping into the accent. One thing that I would think would give even, you know, the most beautiful, confident people in the world a little bit of pause is seeing on that script just some of the no-holds-barred stuff your character was going to have to do, Mm. which I don't think you'd been doing on soap operas or other stuff, or Pan Am (laughs) on network television. So when you sat down and read that, even though it's for Martin Scorsese and obviously everybody wants to work with him and whatever and Leo and... Like, how do you process that as an actor, you know, seeing that that's something that you're going to be asked to do? Totally. Well, before I signed on for Wolf, I was going to, with the contract, have to sign a nudity rider. And that's that's that really gave me a moment to pause and kind of question if that's what I want to do. And it is a big step as an actor to, to take that step, I think. Plus, I was, you know, 21, 22 at the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was a, it was a tricky decision. And Marty made it really easy for me. He said, you know, you do what you're comfortable doing. If you want to wear a robe in this scene, if you want to, you know, we'll work around your comfort Mm -hmm. levels, which is so lovely of him. And actually I was the one that then said, it's not right. Like the Duchess, she does like her sexuality is her currency in this world of rich guys. She's, if she's trying to go for that shock factor she's not going to come out wearing a robe she would come out naked as it says in the script that's Mm -hmm. what's right for the scene that's what's right for the character i didn't feel like i'd be doing the character justice if i didn't yeah fully commit to that so ultimately it was my choice and and i wasn't you know kind of forced into it at all and I'll, I'll never regret doing that as much as those pictures can be taken out of context on social media and stuff which i'll probably never stop seeing on my instagram feed people tag you yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Oh, in case you forgot that you that you did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's also, I mean, and and who cares about me seeing it? I know what I look like naked. Right. But you got to consider, like, my school teachers see that, my brothers have to see that, my grandparents. You know, like it's it is it it. Yeah, I definitely had time to wonder sure. if, if this is going to affect my family members and stuff in a negative way. But ultimately, I wanted to do what was right for the character. And and you've seemed to have some fun with the fact that when you finally had I guess like a family and friends screening of the movie mm-hmm. it was you know how did I guess you said you have an older brother I think that yeah I've got two brothers my older brother <laughs> is like, it was very awkward after that yeah. screening we literally like the screening finished and we kind of like saw each other afterwards and he was like yeah so uh that and he like kind of went to go give like a congratulatory sort of half hug but we just kind of I just was like you know what 
we don't have to speak for a couple of weeks. And he was like, cool. And he just walked out. And we didn't. We didn't speak for a couple of weeks. That's and then so the next funny. time we spoke, we just pretended that never happened. <laughs> and we've never revisited it. Well, well I, I will say that it was in the month of December of 2013 that they first started screening that movie in New York. And as I mentioned earlier, I remember it was an interesting time to – be there as a journalist just because I was seeing them roll out this movie, which, and then you guys came to town to sort of promote it for a few days. Mm -hmm. I did some Q and A's with you in front of Academy members. And I remember that as excited as they were to see Leo or McConaughey or whatever, like there was this very palpable sense of excitement, like who is this new person? And I think you were maybe a little shell shocked at the time. Is that fair to say? Because I think you were with your mom, if I recall, mm -hmm. and just seeming to like, it's got to have been overwhelming to have probably a lot of people who you've known about all your life for the first time, basically converging on you with feedback and all of this at just that, you know, all at once. What was that time immediately after people started seeing the movie like? It was a little overwhelming, but I keep finding that whenever I do a film or something, when we're working on it and when we're on set... For some reason, I never consider the repercussions of what we're doing day in and day out. I, I love being on a film set. I love going to work. I love acting. And I somehow neglect to remember <laughs> that the whole world is then going to see what we did that right, day on right. set at some point. So when we were shooting Wolf, I mean, I was just having the best time ever. And, and it was such an incredible set to be on, such incredible people to work with. I'd never really considered that anyone would talk about my work when the film came out, I thought, well, I'm not, you know, I'm number three on the call mm -hmm. sheet, but really mm -hmm. this is like Leo's film right. and all these like, you know, big film stars, they'll get talked about, but no one's really going to like mention my stuff because I'm no one. <laughs> so I guess when we started doing press, when, when yes, when there was suddenly this attention on, on my acting or on my role or whatever, it, it was kind of surprising to me. I wasn't expecting it. And at that time, did you already have sweet princess in the in the can because that was shortly after I but that was still must, a smaller part so I you must wouldn't have yeah because you it wouldn't was have. a very small part but again it was so much fun shooting it over in belgium i met two of my best friends on that job one of them is now my husband uh -huh. so that was that was brilliant and then i did straight after sweet says i did focus with so will smith that's the first one that was the result of the success of wolf of wall street yes but wolf wasn't out yet the day the last day of shooting on focus was the night of the new york premiere of wolf so how did they December know to cast you in you know was it on the basis of an audition or some I footage? Or, yeah, yeah, I auditioned for, for Focus and for Sweet Frances. I did tapes wow. again. And then for Focus, I got brought in to do like an in-person audition with Will. With Will. Yeah. And just to remind folks, you guys, I guess he's sort of the mentor thief to the protege thief in that one. And I guess first leading role in a big movie, right? Yes, it was. Not to say yeah. that. I mean, Wolf was not a small role, but it was not. You're the no. co-lead in this. Exactly, yeah. I read a thing about the sort of a cautionary lesson that you took away from the from a day on focus where it involved will and ice cream like it was for what in a sense of what you were potentially headed towards with yeah fame what, so what was naive that? i never thought it i would ever find myself in his position yeah because this was now already what like three four years ago yeah Yes, we were we were shooting the second segment of the the film, which we shot in Argentina, Buenos Aires. 
which is so much fun. Yeah. Honestly, I say this about every film that it was the most fun ever, but Focus, <laughs> we shot New Orleans and then Buenos Aires. I mean, two of the greatest yeah. places on earth. Right. But yeah, one night I remember I remember saying to Will like, oh, come on, a couple of us are going to go get some ice cream. Are you going to come? And he was like, no, no, I'm good. And I was like, wow, what's the matter? You don't like ice cream? Like what? And he was like, I, ca- I can't. Like, I- But you guys go, you guys go. And I was like, what do you mean you can't? And I was like, ugh, Will, you just think you have to go everywhere with a bodyguard. Really, I'm sure if you just walked out wearing no sunglasses, looking all normal down the street, no one's going to bat an eyelid. Just come for a walk and go. And he was like, you know what, Margo? I'm sure you know more than me. Yes, (laughs) let's go get ice cream. I'm sure it's as simple as you're saying. He probably knew perfectly well what was going to happen. I didn't. I genuinely thought, why can't he walk with us to come get some ice cream right now? And as soon as we stepped out of the hotel, he was mobbed by about 50 people and like scream- and like his bodyguard had to like come in and help kind of get him out of the crowd. And he just like looked over at me like, you see? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my gosh. this It really bummed me out. I was... Yeah, I just felt bad in that moment. I, was, I felt bad that a, I dragged him into that, right, right. but I, he didn't care. He, he's he's so good natured about everything and funny. And but I was like, wow, I can't believe that's the reality of his his life, day in and day out. And whether or not the exact same, the exact same magnitude of thing, I don't know what if you would now today if you walked if we walked out onto Hollywood Boulevard, I'm sure there would be a scene. But my question is, you know, you've you've talked in a few other interviews that since then that. In hindsight, which is all it can ever be for a lot of actors, you don't, I guess, know until you're in it. Mm -hmm. But in hindsight, you might have preferred to do some other aspect of the filmmaking process. Is that really true? Yeah. And look, I'll never, I'm so grateful for the position I'm in. And I do, I love my job so much. But yeah, in hindsight, I've realized you can be an actor and not be famous. You could do stage plays. You can, you know, so if I'd had my time again, I would never give up acting. I'd never give up being in this industry because I love it and I'm so lucky to be in it. Perhaps I would do more the stage play route or it would be nice to have your cake and eat it too. It would be nice to be acting and have your anonymity. Makes sense. I guess another just sort of question about the strategic approach to a career is after certainly The Wolf of Wall Street and about time, I guess you said that these were both both scripts that had in their actual descriptions basically said this is the hottest person. The description of the character is this is the hottest person ever. I think literally <laughs> Terrence Winter's script said, quote, the hottest blonde ever, close quote. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah no pressure. So, no pressure. But I mean, people weren't complaining after seeing those movies. I think that was great. But from your point of view, you're now looking to have a long career and it sounds like you know it seems like then the the question becomes how do you not do something so different that people are like what the hell is going on but at the same time do things that allow you to show that you're an actress not Mm -hmm. um you know a model in movies Mm -hmm. how have you since those movies because it seems to me like from things i've read that it's a consideration like what when you pick a part it's not just to be for for anyone who wants to be eye candy or whatever and you haven't been how do you think through things when you look at a part? I always ask myself, am I the right actress to play this role? I've read great scripts and been offered great roles that I've actually thought, I truly believe another actress out there could do this role better than I mm-hmm. can. And and sometimes my team have been like, why are you saying no to this? This is great. I'm like, I know it's great. Right. I have no doubt this will be a successful film. I just think someone can do this role better than I can. And I've never regretted those decisions. And, and I do ask myself that with every role. And and 
at the same time, kind of, it's, it's the same thing I felt when I was doing Neighbours. I was like, I don't want to play the same character. I don't want to do the same thing for a really long time. It just, that's that's not the way I personally like to work because I find myself slipping into a comfort zone and my work becomes more mediocre in that way. I, I need to feel challenged. I need to feel like maybe I can't do it to really be able to lift my game. So playing a character that's similar to a character I've already played has never been, yeah. you know, interesting to me. I always want to play someone that feels very different to all the other characters I've played, which means that sometimes you do go from playing the Duchess to Anne Burden in right. Zephyr Zachariah or Harley Quinn to Mary Queen of Scots. Like right. they are so different, but that's the greatest thing in the world. And I feel like I'm not ever going to grow as an actor or get any better at my job if I sit in my comfort zone. So I do try and find characters that are different from the last thing I've played. It's it's not because I'm trying to make a statement like, hey, look, look, you can't typecast me. It's right. not about that. Right, right, I just right. don't ever want to plateau as an actor. Sure. I want to get better as an actor, and I can't do that if I stay in my comfort zone. And it seems like you have a, a good sense of humor about it to the extent that, on the one hand, yes, you've said, and I've seen a few interviews, like, it's reductive when people say, like, bombshell or whatever, if that's the first adjective. But then you can go and do the big short, or the the funniest thing I've seen in a long time on SNL, and I happen to I've only been twice in my life to actually see it, mm-hmm. and I was there the night you did it. And oh, the were thing, you? Yeah, it was I fantastic. Didn't know that. Yeah, it was great. And <laughs> it was funny. the thing with uh, <laughs> the newscast of you. Oh with my <laughs> gosh! That, that <laughs> How was are you so with this guy? Funny. Was, yeah, it was Matt the funniest chat. thing. Match so, chat. Right. I I think, but so it's nice to be able to you know, laugh about it. Totally. And in that instance, it's like that sketch was so good. Oh. That script worked so yes. well. Yes. I was like, I ne- I'd never want to turn that down. No. It was funny. It was great. It was great. What was it? The season finale, right? It, it was, was the season opener. Season opener. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I remember because there was a lot of uh, excitement about it. And yeah. that was the best. This is the one they just won the yeah. the Emmy for. So yeah. anyway. I know. Uh, How lucky am I? It was pretty cool. So now around this same time of all of, of you know, what we're talking about coming out of Wolf of Wall Street, going on to the next chapter. You started a production company, mm-hmm. Lucky Chap Entertainment. Yeah. What motivated my friend, you? My friends that? and I did. You it and wasn't, your friends. It wasn't okay, me it wasn't just you. <laughs> but like, what's the, what's the rationale behind doing that? A lot of actors do, but not all. And for some people, it's just like a, a vanity thing and they never do anything with it. But mm-hmm. we'll come to the most recent thing that's come out of that, which is I, Tanya. And, mm-hmm. But why was that important to you? Well, when I was doing Sweet Frances and I met two of my now best friends, Josie and Tom, who were the second AD and third AD on the job, I asked them, why are you ADing? What's the grand plan? Because you get paid like shit and everyone yells at you Mm -hmm. all day. And they said, we want to produce one day. And I said, well, look, one day I plan on writing and directing. We should should do stuff together. That conversation never came to fruition until probably a year or two later when a friend's script, who was also an AD actually, he wrote a script and, you know, he was someone was trying to get it made and they weren't really going about it in the right way and at some point we were just like dude we'll make it like why not yeah like who's to say this person who's trying to make it right now could do a better job like right. who's to say we wouldn't do a good job of it and so my assistant and best friend Soph, who we're also living with, we all live together, by the way. It's a very uh, close knit group. Today, so. No, not not now. Uh, Actually, no. Technically, pretty recently. Technically, yeah. we're all living together again in Albuquerque, That's where we're cool. shooting at the moment. Okay, so yeah, all right. <laughs> but no, for for three years we all lived together, right. and this is when the company, like we, you know, actually took a domain name and all that kind of stuff and and registered it as a business. And it got up and running to produce our friend's script, which I also acted in. It's called Terminal. So it's that was technically our first lucky chap 
project, yep. but it will release after Tonya. So it was the first, but it will be Tonya gotcha. will be the first to be released. And from that point on, we we really started building the the company, and now we have a slate full of feature films, and we have a TV department which we started earlier this year, which it's amazing, yeah, which has a slate of bunch of projects there as well. So yeah, it's it's really flourishing, and it's it's gotten a lot more traction. It's all happened a lot quicker than we expected. It's grown. It's grown a lot quicker than we expected, and it allows you to just have some sense of control over your own destiny right definitely definitely and not to say that I wasn't satisfied with the acting roles I was receiving outside the production company I felt like I was getting great material and I love that I still am doing a lot of projects that I'm not producing at all yeah and I love doing that Mm -hmm. it's really nice not to have the extra stress to be honest (laughs) but it's nice to have a balance it's nice to be working on ones that I am producing and it's nice to be working ones that we're not producing but yes it does give that extra creative control and and I've been on film sets now for 10 years and as much as I used to think like, oh, I'm new to this, I won't pipe up because other people know better, at some point I start being like, I have been doing this for a long time. Like, right. Don't. Honestly, when yeah. I when that decision was made just then, I actually maybe think there could have been another way of going about it and, and who's to say I'm wrong in right. thinking that. Right. I, I am kind of qualified by right. this point. Right. So, so I guess it's nice as a producer to have a say in those conversations and to have a voice when making those decisions and, and yeah, to have that extra creative control so that a project that I love so much can be shaped in a way that I feel like it should be shaped or the way that, you know, us and our co-producers and many other people yeah. that shape a film do shape it, but to have a voice in it at least, whereas... As an actor, you come in, you do your bit and you go and that's amazing and it's satisfying and you obviously add to a film in a big way in doing that as well. But it always feels like someone else's project. Right. I always feel like I stepped in and, and when the film comes out, I'm like, oh, I'm so happy for you, right. for your project. Right. But I, I, it's not like, oh, I'm happy that was my project. Mm-hmm. It's so it's, it's extra satisfying on a creative level. To, to really be invested in project for years. I mean, it takes yeah, years. For sure. And it sounds like this might be the vehicle through which eventually you will do what you say you want to do with writing or directing your own thing, yeah. right? So you yeah. can do it through your own exactly. company as well. Exactly. But, okay, so last thing pre-I, Tanya, is this crazy 2016 where you had th- at least three movies, that, I, if I counted correctly, and two of them out at the same summer. Yeah. And let's just remind people, War Correspondent, Whiskey Tango, Foxtrot, Jane in Legend of Tarzan and Harley Quinn in Suicide Squad. Mm-hmm. So busy year. <laughs> busy year. I mean, I'm sure it was m- more over, a, maybe spread out a little bit more in the making of it, but to have them all come out, mm-hmm. have to promote it, do all this stuff in, in yeah. one year. Tent- tentpole films, too, obviously you promote yeah. a lot more heavily because there's the budget to promote it more right. heavily. So so you can do like a month long press tour f- per film. So Crazy. it does, It yeah. Well, let me ask you if I can just a quick hit on each of these mm-hmm. whiskey tangle foxtrot the guys who have since gone on to do this is us that's who you did it with right those are wasn't that requa and, and all those guys yeah. yeah and tina fey of course and <laughs> just your main takeaway as you look back on that one i just love working with john and glenn so much we worked together on focus and i loved them oh, yeah. and when we finished focus i said like i love you guys if you ever want me in another film, right. no questions asked, I'm in. And they're like, great, we're looking at a film right now. And I was like, well, I'm in. <laughs> right. And then there we were. We were shooting Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, which was so cool to work with Tina Fey, obviously, who's just incredible. And she was also a producer on that film. And I remember asking, like, how 
do you act in a film and produce at the same time? How do you find it? And tell me, tell me your secret. (laughs) And she, I remember she said, it's kind of like planning a wedding day. If you do a lot of preparation in advance, you can just enjoy the day. (laughs) And I've always, I've always remembered that. And, and because, because, you know, doing Tonya and, and Terminal and Dreamland, because I'm acting in those films as well as being one of the producers, I, I just try and do as much preparation because it's not going to be good for a director to have an actor who's running off looking at call sheets in the middle of a scene. Like right. I, I need to be like 100% their actor in shooting hours yeah. and then as soon as the shooting hours are over, back to producer. Uh, yeah. But that means doing months and months of preparation in advance. So I always really appreciated that she gave me that piece of advice. Yeah, sounds smart. Legend of Tarzan, this was something that I think you spent almost all of 2014 right yeah. after Wolf Wall Street doing. Yeah, in London. This was This came about because Jerry Weintraub had been trying to make it forever. I guess he was enamored with you. He said, this was a funny, strange quote, quote, when I think of Margot Robbie, a single word comes to mind, Audrey Hepburn, which a single word, but he's Jerry, he he's Jerry, he, he can say what he wants, right. <laughs> so in the process of making this, un- unfortunately, he suddenly passed away. People may remember, will remember. This is like a massive scale thing compared to anything prior to that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It How was, did you handle that? Oh, it was incredible. It was just well to be honest actually the the length that we shot for was comparable to wolf the budget was more than wolf but still like that was wolf was a big budget set these sets were like nothing i'd ever seen before i mean they they built the congo in the back lot of leaveston it was incredible <laughs> i was like a kid right. in a candy shop walking onto set right. every day i'm like oh my god there's waterfalls and rain <laughs> machines and they build a forest that you can run through and still not reach the other side of the studio and alex of course was playing tarzan who's the greatest human being on the planet mm. um oh, yeah. and and there, david yeah. yates you know yeah. did the harry potter series if anyone's going to pull off a big budget film and not make it cheesy it's him. Yeah. So I felt very confident signing on for that. And and we shot for ages and I loved it. I was having such a hell time that we were living in London and that's when we all moved in together. And it was just one of the best. 2014 is probably my favorite year of my life. That was great. Last of those three, Suicide Squad. This is obviously you're signing up to subject yourself to the approval or disapproval of a huge universe of DC Comics obsessives and fanboys and whatever, plus a lot of physical stuff which you ended up, I think, doing much of yourself for the movie, the stunts and all of that. Mm-hmm. It sounds like this will live on in a, its own spinoff to come, Harley Quinn. What's the takeaway there? That was incredible, too. Harley was, I mean, such a gift to get given that role. I, I had no idea what I was in for when I signed on. When I signed on, there was no script. There was no one else attached. And I wasn't familiar with the comics all the comic book world and, and the fandom behind it, to be honest. All there was was David Eyre, and I adored End of Watch. I saw it like four times yeah. in this cinema, and that was enough for me. I was like, oh, my goodness, a David Eyre film. This is going to be crazy. This is going to be so cool. And we had a Skype, and he described two scenes that he had in his head, one of which did end up in the film. The other never ended up in the film. We didn't film it, but it was a cool scene. And when he described them, I was like, I am in and I actually had another offer at the time to do another very big budget film and be the lead of it and all that kind of stuff and I was imminently going to sign the contract and I remember just thinking ah maybe I won't do that thing maybe I'll do this instead and I remember asking asking my best friend and assistant so I was like what do you think she's like what are you talking about 
this this job. It's perfect. I was like, I know, but I just have a gut feeling. I can't describe it. I really think I should do the David Ayer, Harley Quinn thing. You know, and she said, go with your gut. And I did. And, and yeah, and it, it, obviously here we are today. Yeah. It was it was incredible experience. I love playing Harley. I love her Seems so fun. much. Yeah. She is so much fun to play. <laughs> and the fact that I get to keep playing her, hopefully, fingers crossed, yeah. it's, just, it's just even better. And where does that stand? You're just waiting on a script or what? Waiting, yeah, waiting on a script. Yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, well, we don't know. <laughs> so coming into the home stretch here, a month ago, I think almost exactly, I'm at the Toronto Film Festival seeing like four movies a day and starting to go insane because they all just start to blur together. And then the good ones, though, stand out. And I happened to go to the premiere of this movie that had, had some nice buzz going in, but, you know, so do a lot of movies that don't pan out. And that was, in this case, the, that was not a concern because people loved I, Tanya. And mm-hmm. so this is a production of... Lucky Chap, meaning your producer of it, and starring in it as Tanya Harding. And I just wonder how it first crossed your radar and what you made of it all, because if my math is correct, I don't know if you were even walking when this incident itself happened. So I was. I was walking. I walking. was four. <laughs> okay. right. But I was too young to be aware of it. Right. I, I when I read the script, I thought it was fiction. I didn't know it was a. I didn't know these people were true people, real life people, right. and that it all happened. I totally missed the whole scandal that kind of yes. seemed to echo around the world. Yes. So you read it. It's not something you're familiar with at that time, but you connected to it just as a it's good script. Good script. It was a really good script. It was like one of the best scripts I've ever read. I remember thinking this is, I have to do this. This is so good. I assume that even at that time, certainly when you come on, you can, you, you ended up, I'm, I'm sure, having input that changed things or whatever. But the real, just the overall structure of the movie for people who haven't yet seen it is sort of documentary style interviews flashing back to the incidents being described. Mm -hmm. And even though those incidents are very dark in a lot of cases, it's a very funny movie. It's sort of like somehow Goodfellas similarly like juggles those kinds of that kind of structure. And I just wonder what you think is the key to making that work. Like why, why does that work? And we're not just so demoralized by seeing, I mean, this Mm -hmm. is also you're with Alison Janney and they're playing the most evil mother since, mm-hmm. like, Precious. <laughs> I mean. Totally. No, I, I know. I mean, look, it had it has a very specific tone. It was evident on the page that it had a very specific tone. It was, like I said, a brilliant script. On, on the page, you could tell that it was very dark and very funny and very unconventional. It was very original in its structure. A lot of different narrators giving their perspective and all their perspectives seemed to contradict each other. So... It's kind of non-linear in, in that respect, but that's not tricky. That That's very, you know, that's doable. The tone is something that's tricky because you have to get the right director and you have to get the right actor. You have to get the right everything right. There's there's only one way to do it right and there's a million ways to do it yeah. wrong. And that's why it was a scary script to take on. And I guess we were naive enough at the time to be like, we can do it. So uh, <laughs> and, and you came on at a point where you then have to... It was early enough that you hire a director, cast the other cast everything, parts. get it all together. And then comes the part and of your own, re- yeah, your yeah, own yeah, responsibility. And then do that bit. Yeah. <laughs> that little thing. But Craig, honestly, to, to answer the question about how to accomplish that tone, yeah. it, it, we, we knew we were going to have to – we had a director list of about 150 directors, which we kept whittling down, mm. doing so much research, talking to them. And we, we kind of narrowed it down to a short list of brilliant directors. And, and when we spoke to them, we all asked about tone. And But you talk about tone, and when you're putting any film together, everyone talks about tone. Yeah. 
tone. You always talk about tone and it's this <laughs> intangible thing that it's very hard to describe and it's very hard to talk about it and feel convinced that someone's going to pull off, you know, on screen the way they spoke about it. But not with Craig. When Craig spoke about it, he gave logistical answers. He gave he gave technical answers to this intangible thing and, and you know, he gave examples of what size frame he would cut to at what instance, what the music cue would be, what, you know, he's like, I'm not going to lead the audience to think this at this point, this and this. He added the fourth wall, breaking the fourth wall element in. You know, there were so many things that he said that really differentiated his perspective from other directors. And and he'd also done Lars and the Real Girl, which has that dark comedic tone, and we knew that he could pull that off. And he shoots a lot of commercials, so he can shoot fast, which I don't think anyone else could have done this film because we had... We had 31 days and we had 260-something scenes, which normally you have 160 scenes and maybe six months to shoot it. We were like, it was, and we had the skating sequences, we had Olympics, we had its period. I mean, all the things that make a film tricky, we had in spades. So it was, was, yeah, incredibly difficult, but every person that came on bled for this film and every person that came on was brilliant and and we we had the best team in it. It came together. Oh, definitely. And I want to just quickly button down some FAQs that are going to come up and I'm sure are already like Q&As and things for you. What was Tanya Harding's involvement with the film? So Craig and I flew to Portland to meet with Tanya before, right before we started shooting. I said that I don't want to meet with her until I've made all my decisions on how I'm going to play her. Mm-hmm. I don't want meeting her to inform the way, the character I play. I wanted to tell her, like I, like I said when I met Naomi for Wolf of Wall Street, I said, I'm playing a character, you know, who was in the same circumstance you right. were in, but I'm not playing yeah. you. And yeah. I, I want you to understand that, that there's a difference. And, and I'm, it was great. I, I wanted to have the liberty to, to really play this character's, you know, with all its flaws and all its mm-hmm. glory and not feel like I needed to sugarcoat anything. So, so I made all the decisions. I did all my prep and all that. And we were obviously about to start shooting. And then we met with Tonya, which was, which was amazing. And she's, she's been incredible. And beyond that, she wasn't involved. She wasn't a consultant. She wasn't on set. She didn't have any say in the script. It's not like you took her look. I mean, you no, didn't she, take like a she book does, or yeah, right. She doesn't have a book. Right. There wasn't an article. Right. There was nothing like that. But Stephen had done a six-hour interview with her and he'd done a six-hour interview with Jeff Galuli. Right. And both the interviews contradicted each other so much <laughs> that he thought this is going to be a That's great script. Fair. And thus was born the structure of our film. So he had her life rights, but beyond that she wasn't involved and, and we were then able to tell an unbiased telling of this story based on those two interviews and and all the information and documentaries and stuff out there there's so much incredible information and the best part is that it does all contradict itself so yeah and then and then she saw it not long ago a few days before we premiered at tiff and hopefully we will see her at the you know the big world premieres she did not not approve she no no i mean the film was made by that point but but it was more out of you know Courtesy. Right. It's, it's a it's a sensitive thing to make a right. film about someone's life, particularly when there's so many traumatic moments of her life in the film. And you know, we we obviously kept in contact throughout the process to check in, like, hey, it's day one. Yeah. You know, just just you know, want to make sure that she feels comfortable. Yeah. And yes, no, I, I believe she was really happy with the end result. We we were texting, and she was so lovely about it all. She was very understanding. You know, she she never tried to make us hold back right. or, or sugarcoat her story in any way. We said, this is a film, we got we got to tell yeah. it, you know, in our creative way. Now, for you, I would think the two hardest things might have been, first of all, you play her from 15 to 44. Yep. 
So you've got to make that believable at all points beyond just the hair and makeup. Yeah. And then also, this is a person who's done things in skating that like fewer than 10 other people have mm-hmm. done. And it actually really, I, I am genuinely curious to know how you made it look, the skating look so believable because it's, I, I was like, I don't think, like I know, I remember hearing that Margot likes hockey, so maybe she skated, <laughs> but like I don't think she's doing triple axles. I cannot so, do a triple axle, no. <laughs> spoiler alert. Right. I, I cannot. And it's not just me that can't do a triple axle, like Nobody. pretty much <laughs> everyone can't do a triple axle. Right. We didn't really appreciate the enormity of what Tonya had done in, in landing a triple axle in competition until it came time to try and shoot the triple axel. And we kind of said to our skate choreographer, right, well, can we just get someone who kind of looks same sort of bodybuilder as Margot who could do a triple axel? And she was like, (laughs) (laughs) laughed in our face. She was like, no, no, you can't. No one can do it. Like, we're like, well, this is 25 years ago, like sports progress and, you know, training techniques and all that. And no, that's still a a, a really, really difficult, almost impossible thing to do. So we had to CGI it. Actually, but actually, a fair amount of the other of the other skating. I mean, you trained and you were doing yeah. a lot of skating. But yeah, I was doing. A, I was doing a lot of <laughs> yes, skating, yes. which was both painful and incredibly fun. Yeah, I loved it. It was yeah very difficult. It's a very hard sport. Did a lot of training, and we also had an incre- like two incredible stunt doubles for the jumps. Because yeah. even if I had. 10 years to practice, I couldn't do Plus these it jumps. it wouldn't be great if you, like, broke your ankle in the middle Plus of the insurance film. insurance would never, yes. ever cover me for that. <laughs> yeah, but, but no, everything else was was me and our, and our stunt doubles did did an amazing, amazing job as well. And Craig kind of, you know, cut it together seamlessly. Well, I have just three more if I can, and we're, then I'll liberate you here. I just have to ask, I mean, the, the first thing is, did you feel like you went to a different level of pushing yourself or getting something more out of yourself than you'd had before in the sense that, I mean, there was a, one interview I read already where you said that in a some of the abuse or mutual abuse scenes or whatever that, like, at one point you you even kind of, like, lost track of, that, of reality versus acting. I mean, is it mm-hmm. having now seen the finished product and having gone through it all, humility aside, like, is this a different level of what you've been trying to do for yourself? It was. It was, actually. There's been a... There's been a few moments where I've kind of genuinely forgotten that I was on a film set. It's hard to forget. You have a camera in right. your face. <laughs> you have 50 crew members, maybe 100 around you. It's it's impossible almost to forget that you're on a film set. I've had a few moments in my career so far that I genuinely forgot where I was and I forgot that I wasn't that character. One was on Wolf when we did that big fight scene at the yeah. end after the divorce. A lot of that was improvised and we made up that whole thing the night before and and I was so tired by that point. I, I think I was like a bit, yeah, I, it, we got so into it. I really genuinely forgot where I was. Same thing on Tonya in one of the fight scenes with Sebastian, genuinely forgot that I was on yeah. the set. and him. <laughs> Yeah, and I accidentally punched him in the side of the head. Right. But he was very understanding about it. <laughs> and more recently on Mary Queen of Scots, actually, I had that moment again. Honestly, those three moments are in like, the best moments of my life. That's it's nothing in the world is more exhilarating than genuinely forgetting. I don't know. The re- I, I guess the reason I love movies and or love books, love mm-hmm. any form of escapism, is to be transported to you know just stop being in your own world. And those moments, I genuinely didn't feel like I was in my own world anymore, and that was just the best That's thing right. in the world. Which leads to number two, which is the reaction at TIFF. You guys got great feedback from the audiences, mm-hmm. great feedback from the critics, and 
you sold the movie, like it was the, the acquisition of the festival, which yes. it doesn't happen because people just like you or like whatever. I mean, you had to do a great job. And so what did all of that mean? And that sort of launched us into this, you know, fall of a lot of stuff that's now coming up. Yeah, TIFF was TIFF was a crucial time for us. We had to sell our domestic distribution and, you know, sell to someone well, we were curious to see if the people watching, you know, the distributors watching the film felt that it was awards worthy. Mm-hmm. We all hoped it was, yeah. of course, but to have the resounding feedback that, yes, we want to go for a fourth quarter release and make a run for awards was, you know, obviously a huge compliment for everyone's work. And that was exciting. And now we're in the midst of this crazy time of right. year and I've never been involved with this side of things. I've never <laughs> never been a part of awards campaign or this time yes, of year. Yes. So this is a new learning process. But Tiff was amazing to our movie is so it's not conventional. It's hard to liken it to other things. It's it's hard to know how people were going to react to it. So so to say that we were anxious was is an understatement. But to have both the public give such incredible feedback and the critics give incredible feedback. We just, it was like Christmas morning. Right. Well, the last question is just a sort of big picture. Like it's a weird time because on the one hand we have very talented actresses who can run production companies and who are running studios in some cases and who are doing great things. At the same time, we are in a week where a very good friend of yours and a lot of other people have come out and said they've dealt with a lot of bullshit that people didn't necessarily realize was mm-hmm. going on in this town or the business. Mm-hmm. I just wonder what you make of it all to be a young woman coming up at this time in, in the business with this, both the, the, the greatest things and the shittiest things happening around you at this point. Like, mm-hmm. what's your state of the union right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously this week's been horrible to hear those things. The, the reports were just heartbreaking. I think it's heartbreaking also to acknowledge that it's not just our industry. It's so many industries and in so many industries, like you said, there are women in places of power that, you know, never was feasible a decade ago. And and you do feel like, yay, we've come so far. And then, and then you hear things like this and you kind of ask, have we? I guess what's been the most inspiring thing out of such a horrible situation is the support for the women that came forward and not just from other women but from men as well. And the idea that the conversation is happening is a really good thing, I think. And for people to be able to feel like if they come forward they're going to be supported is an incredible thing. So it's a horrible situation but moving forward I think, I think, I I hope only good can come out of how prevalent this conversation is. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and congratulations on an exciting period. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash scottfeinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.